All right, buckle up, y'all. This is going to be a great episode. I really enjoyed sitting down with Chelsea Horton of Healing Embodied. She is a board-certified dance movement therapist and the founder of Healing Embodied and has experienced anxiety, shame, and religious trauma and dedicated the last nine years of her life to unlearning this and stepping more fully into her authentic self, which I absolutely love. She has worked with hundreds of people around the world, helping them to overcome anxiety in their lives and relationships through the power of dance movement therapy. I just really loved this conversation. We dive into this good girl or good human programming that so many of us have. We dive into shame. We dive into how to build more trust with yourselves. And all of these topics are so important, and I really value hearing Chelsea's insights. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, Chelsea. Welcome to the You Love and You Learn podcast. Hi, I'm so excited to be a guest. Yes, I'm so excited to you. And I know we've talked about this offline, but we've been connected for, I feel like, at least two years now and been wanting to kind of do some sort of collaboration, but I'm glad we finally get to sit down and talk. I feel like podcasting is such a fantastic way to collaborate and to like share ideas but there's like not all this pressure of like doing a workshop or doing a this it's like a very easy fun pleasurable way to connect and collaborate so I'm really excited yeah and I feel like one of the coolest parts about I mean any sort of work but specifically in relationship anxiety work that both of us are in I think hearing different perspectives of the same topic is so important because me and you might believe very similar things, but the way we articulate or communicate it might resonate with completely different people. And then the same different people or the different people, sorry, can learn the same concept through someone that really sticks with them and their message. So that's why I just love, and I mean, so much of what you do, I might not have said it that way myself, but it really resonates with me. So it's nice to just hear those alternate perspectives. Agreed. Agreed. I think it's so important to hear different voices on the same thing or on on a similar topic. Yeah. Well, if someone has not yet come across you and Healing Embodied, do you just want to kind of give them a little bit of background about who you are and kind of how you got to where you're at? Sure. Oh, Lord, where do I begin? Um, (laughs) So I started Healing Embodied at the end of 2019. And not many people know this, but when I first, first started healing embodied, I was actually more focused on, um, religious trauma and shame. Mm. Um, and I eventually started veering into how that manifested in my relationship, which was relationship anxiety, like my fear of failure, my fear of disappointing God, my fear of being on the wrong path, AKA picking the wrong person, you know, the, the spiritual differences between me and my now husband, um, it was relationship anxiety that I was experiencing. And so many people were like, oh my God, me too, that I just kept talking about it. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2023. Um, I've helped so many people with relationship anxiety. I, my um, unique standpoint or viewpoint is that I'm a board certified dance movement therapist So that's how I was able to process my anxiety, my religious trauma, and that's the modality that I use to help clients. So I love what I do and always excited to talk about it. Yeah. And for those who might not know what dance movement therapy is, can you just give kind of a little dip into what that would look like? Yeah. So it's a form of psychotherapy therapy. Dance therapists have to be trained 
in what every other therapist is trained in, but we're also trained in the body-mind connection. Um, it's a form of creative arts therapy, kind of meets somatic therapy. So we're learning about the body. We're learning about how emotion, how to process and support people in processing emotions through the body, using creativity, using movement. It's not always, quote-unquote, dance. It's not like I'm teaching anyone a dance routine. It's Dance is more of the creative aspect of processing emotions through the body. So yeah, you don't have to be a dancer. You don't have to know how to dance to, to benefit from dance movement therapy. You're just using your body, which is, I believe your greatest ally in your healing and processing emotions in a, in a different way. Yeah. And I've loved watching just some of the Instagram videos or reels that you've done where you're kind of moving through a moment of anxiety. So definitely for anyone that hasn't seen that, I recommend checking it out just because it's something that I feel like no one is really showing the process and you're doing that. Um, so people can actually get a sense of, oh, okay, yeah, this is something that I can use as a tool and actually see it happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So There's so many good things that you talk about, but I feel like recently you've been talking about shame and unlearning some kind of like programming that we have to be either the good girl or the good person, whatever the programming was that you had, and then how to kind of move beyond some of those things into a place of deeper self-trust and trust in your ability to kind of handle life and move through that. And so I pulled some quotes that you have recently shared on these topics, and I'd love to unpack them because, again, I just love your take on some of these things. And I think that there's just so much more that an Instagram post can really capture. So that's why we can go deeper into it. So when it comes to shame, you recently shared that we cannot dismantle our anxiety unless we unravel the many shame stories embedded inside of us. When you no longer carry shame, the anxiety does not need to work so hard to make sure, in air quotes, that you are indeed good, in air quotes. So can you kind of expand on that a little bit? What did you mean when you shared that? Oh, yes. So I have come to find in my work with relationship anxiety um, and anxiety in general that over and over again, I kept bumping up into the same kind of core of people's fears, which was, I'm afraid, a lot of times it's, I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake. I'm afraid I'm going to pick the wrong person. And when we kind of dig beneath the surface of that, it's like, I'm afraid that I'm a failure. I'm afraid that I am wrong and I am bad and that my choices are going to either prove how bad I am or prove how good I am. So if you have a core belief that if I make a mistake, if I'm imperfect, if I quote unquote, disobey God, which was a big fear of mine, that I'm actually fundamentally unworthy or unlovable, or this aspect of my humanity is not even allowed to to be here. It's unsafe to make mistakes. It's unsafe to be imperfect. It's unsafe to be who I am. And so that's that's the shame story that's often kind of at the core. And so anxiety or good girl programming comes in and says, oh, God, oh, God, like, how do I make sure that I don't make a mistake? How do I make sure that I know that I'm with the right person? I'm going to overanalyze everything. I'm going to hyperanalyze everything. I'm going to compare my relationship to other people. I'm going to assess every aspect of the relationship to make sure that it is right so that I'm not doing something wrong and therefore being this horrible person that's worthy of hell in my situation. So that's when anxiety anxiety's job is to make sure you don't do something quote unquote bad or that would make you a bad person because it's 
And again, this is, I call it the anxiety shame cycle, but you could also replace anxiety with good girl programming because good girl programming is all about wanting to make sure you're doing things right. Um, that you're good, that you're never seen as bad. You never do something that would be bad or not good enough. So they kind of feed into each other. And the more, the bigger and the the deeper the shame story is, the more intense the anxiety is. Mm. Yeah, that's so powerful. Can you share, and I mean, I've recently started learning a lot more about shame, but for someone who may not know how shame even kind of begins or like where those shame stories are picked up, can you share a little bit about first how shame is kind of created and then maybe maintained um, and then also how to begin exploring what our own shame stories are so we can get in that awareness? Yeah, shame is so sneaky. And a lot of people I work with, even myself included, are like, oh, I don't have shame. Because a lot of people think shame is, oh, I just hate myself. And every time I look at myself, I just hate myself. Like, I always believed that I was someone with really high self-esteem, really confident. I was a performer. I, like, was straight A student. I, like, really believed I was a confident person. Mm-hmm. So shame isn't always so overt and obvious. Yeah. But shame is created in in so many different ways throughout our lives. Um, I mean, gosh, like it can be created through family, through messages from media, through friends, through experiences, but oftentimes it's when an experience of ours is denied or invalidated. So say you're a kid and you have, you're like a really silly kid. Say you're really silly. You're really goofy. And your parents keep saying, like, stop that, stop that, be quiet, or a school system, sit still, stop that, you're being too silly, you're being too loud. And an aspect of yourself is kind of stamped on, and you begin to learn like, oh, this aspect of myself isn't okay. It's not okay for me to show this part of myself, being this part of myself isn't safe. So I'm going to kind of banish this part of myself into the darkness and that's where shame is created um where we learn like certain aspects of who i am of my authentic self aren't okay um it's not safe um or certain aspects of ourselves are continually praised so say like for my example getting good grades. It's like, I'm always being praised for getting good grades, which isn't a bad thing, but it's like, that was the thing that I learned, like made me worthy. Mm -hmm. And I saw like my parents, my mom getting stressed out and upset when my sister would get not good grades. So I learned, okay. Also like my mom's emotional landscape is going to be kind of dependent on me showing certain aspects of myself and making sure other aspects of myself like imperfection or failure aren't brought to the surface. So it can be learned in so many ways. I mean, we look at media, we look at all the body shaming, just like there's shame everywhere and shaming messages everywhere. But a lot of times it's more implicit Mm -hmm. through learned experiences in childhood. Yeah. I relate to that. And I think, you know, it's always so hard because 
you look back, at least I do on my childhood, and there was never any like major things of, oh my gosh, this huge thing happened with my parents or this huge thing. I mean, there's been some random incidents like at school that were, that made me upset, you know, that I can definitely tie to shame. But like you said, they weren't these overt things at all times, but some of it to your point is, oh, well, if I don't get that A or B, then that means I'm not a good student or that I can't go to a good school and I have to go to a good or that, school. Or that my parents will be mad at me and not love me as much. Exactly. And then yeah. you, it can get even more extreme. That means I'm not a good person, like you said earlier. So it just goes so much farther than we think it does. So because you said that it, it didn't necessarily become obvious to you that you had shame, you kind of had to peel back the curtains a little bit. You're like, oh, I don't have shame. No biggie. Like I'm, I'm totally fine. How did you start to maybe understand a little bit more of what your shame stories were and like get to the root of what was driving your shame? Well, for me, it was, I had to look at the anxiety because the anxiety is often the thing that's the loudest and most painful. And the anxiety kind of sits on top of the shame. So as I started like becoming really curious about why I was so freaking anxious, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in my relationship, I was like, what like, why, why am I so anxious? Like what is driving this anxiety to where I feel like it's life or death if I were to like make the wrong choice in partner. And that kind of led me to like, oh, well, I learned that like God would be disappointed in me. I were, I learned that I wouldn't actually be a true Christian if I didn't end up with someone who was, you know, a term that we use a lot in Christianity is equal yoked, meaning And the church has made that mean like, oh, someone who has the exact same spirituality as you. So I began like these messages that I was kind of fed my whole life began coming to the surface. And the way that they were taught was in a shaming way. Again, it's not always overt, but the the feeling, the visceral feeling and experience I got was if I don't follow these rules, if I don't follow these expectations, these shoulds, then I'm bad. And what that means, if I'm bad, then I'm deserving of hell. Again, my, my example is very extreme. Um, not everyone is told if, you know, if you're a sinner, you're going to burn an eternity for the rest of all of time. Yeah. Um, it's a bit extreme, but you know, we, I just began to uncover, like, what are some of the beliefs and the stories and the experiences that make it feel so unsafe to make a mistake, to be uncertain, and to be with someone who is not who I'm told I should be with? Mm, Yeah, so powerful. I had a similar journey with my own relationship anxiety of just realizing all of these stories that I thought and even just looking at divorce as like a failure that used to be, you know, what I viewed it as. And so then of course I was so scared of ever going in that direction, but I ended up realizing I was so scared of divorce that I was like moving away from divorce instead of moving toward a loving supportive relationship. And those things are very different in how you show up. And yeah, I've, I've found, I don't know if you can relate that when I started sharing my story publicly, which I'm not recommending everyone has to create a social media to do, but now that like hundreds and thousands of people knew my story, I was like, all right, well, it's out there. I don't really have anything to hide necessarily. And so the things that we feel are 
so dark and that we can't share with people, then they end up becoming a bigger deal and harder to actually process versus when we have the courage or we start building enough trust in ourselves to slowly open up to people in our lives. Yeah. Shame is dissolved when we, when those parts of us that we believe are so bad and dark, when those parts of us are witnessed by someone else. And again, it doesn't have to be on a social media platform. It could be a trusted friend. It could be a family member. It could be a therapist. It could be a coach. These parts of you that you believe are, oh my gosh, if someone knew this about me, that I'm just going to confirm that I am unlovable. And to have that part of you met with love and understanding and compassion and me too. And you know that sense of that human connection, that is such a healing experience. Um, because relationship anxiety, not only is it driven by shame, we also feel shame for having it. So yeah. we layer, it's like a little shame sandwich. You know, <laughs> we've got like shame at the bottom, anxiety at top of that. And then another layer of shame for even having the anxiety. Yes. Yeah. I love that analogy. That's so true. And then it just kind of keeps cycling into yes. one and growing and growing. <laughs> so, yeah. so much fun. So I guess going off of that analogy of the sandwich, how do we maybe start removing the layers of the sandwich? And we don't necessarily have to talk about the anxiety piece, but let's start with that top layer of shame, like for experiencing something. It could be anything, anxiety, relationship anxiety, you know, whatever it is, how do people actually start removing that initial layer of shame? Yeah, I think get connected with other human beings. Um, isolation just, it amplifies our shame. So connection is, is vital. So, you know, following an Instagram page is never going to be enough. So don't, don't misquote me y'all. But even finding someone's page or finding a community, online community, in-person community, where people are maybe dealing with or talking about the very things that you're afraid to talk about, yep. even just that that first little moment of like, whoa, like I'm not alone. And oftentimes we look at other people in a much better light than we look at ourselves. We're like, wow, this awesome person deals with this thing that I deal with. And I don't think they're a bad person, but they're dealing with it. So maybe, just maybe, I'm not a bad person. If if she can talk about that, if she can love herself through that, then maybe it's possible for me. So that, that first touch point of connection is so key in removing that, that top layer of shame. Yeah, definitely. And then... I don't know if this will be a whole, this would need to be a whole other podcast episode. So cut me off if you think it would. But if we're moving into that bottom layer, I know that doesn't come easily and it's not just a simple process. But if somebody can identify, let's say they resonate with your story and they're like, wow, yeah, I've experienced some sort of religious message or I've experienced the good girl message. And I know that underneath that is this fear that maybe I'm not a good person if I make a mistake or if I don't marry the right person, then I'm going to have a terrible life. Like maybe that is something they have the awareness of, but what would be the next part of the process? Maybe not the whole process, but just the next thing they could do. Well, working with shame can be really sticky because your mind will kind of keep trying to reinforce the story. Yeah. So my first suggestion is always getting support and working with someone, but 
in that work, in the shame work, um, what we want to do is begin developing and strengthening an internal loving witness. Dr. David, not Dr. David Bedrick, David Bedrick. I don't believe he's a doctor, but David Bedrick, he's like a shame researcher and shame expert. He talks about the shaming inner witness and the loving inner witness. And many of us internalize a shaming inner witness. So we learn if I'm imperfect, shame, 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 shame. If I make a mistake, shame, 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 shame. And we have an internal shaming witness. And the way to, one of the ways to begin to unravel that shame is to develop an internal loving witness. So for me, like I, this was something I was processing like last year. It was like, I imagined myself, my teenage self who was at the church that piled on so much shame. And I like went back to a memory of her where she's like standing in this room of other young teens. And I could feel, I could palpably feel in my body, like the shame and it being so normalized in this situation, it being celebrated to 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 give these shaming messages to young teens and so what I did was I like embodied and imagined myself now as an adult like going in there stepping in there taking her hand and pulling her out of there and saying like enough is enough not to her but to the people who were shaming her Mm. so in doing that I'm I'm cultivating my own loving witness and a loving witness isn't always soft and gentle. Sometimes a loving witness is, I love you so much that I'm not going to let you stand here and get abused anymore. Yeah. I love you so much that I want to protect you. I love you so much that I'm going to set a boundary. Yeah. So for me, it was beginning to develop this part of me that was able to stand in between the messages of shame and my inner child who learned all these messages and to be able to say, this is not okay. I love you too much. I love you too much to let you continue to believe that you're not worthy. And and we can, we can develop this inner loving witness in so many different ways, but that's just one of the most like powerful recent ones because when we live with shame, we have a hard time setting boundaries. When we live in shame, we kind of just like take it from people and we think it's, it's not okay to set boundaries. It's not okay to say, you know what? Like I'm, I don't agree with that. And we just kind of absorb everyone's shoulds and we absorb everyone's expectations instead of being able to access this part of us that says, you know what? That's yours. And that's not mine. Mm. I, I feel confident in who I am. I feel confident in my choices and I know that even if I make a mistake, I'm still worthy of love. So I don't, I don't need to keep receiving what you're trying to put on me. Yeah. Mm, That's super powerful. Thank you for sharing that example. I think that's so helpful. And I've been, I recently, my mom had this picture of me when I was younger, like just a little two year old and I have it with me. Like I'm looking at it on my nightstand and I feel like two is like very young. I don't have very memory, uh, very many memories from that. But just seeing that little innocent self, it's like you can have so much compassion for yourself if you look back at some of these either visual memories or like actually looking and remembering what was going on at that time. And 
like yourself, 13, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that comes up around that time period when you're kind of moving into teenage years and just trying to fit in and just trying to be cool and, you know, have friends and all these things. So as you were sharing, I could think of my own stories with that. So I'm sure everyone else can relate. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely like 13 was, that's when my parents were getting divorced. That's when you're kind of learning who am I in the world? Who am I in relation to other people? Um, So yeah, a lot of us, when we think of inner child work, it's not always like a little, little kid. Sometimes it's our 16 year old self or 17 year old self. Yeah. Yeah. And even just like, I feel like I have even memories of like in college, it's like anytime before when you didn't feel like you knew something that you now know and can like impart that wisdom to your former (laughs) self, I feel like who's to say that it has to even be a child. It can just be your former self that you want to reassure, you know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I loved that piece on shame. Thank you for sharing more about that. I would like to move into building more of a trusting relationship with yourself. I think that's such a big topic, not only in relationships, but just in life in general. And I think part of that good girl programming is that we're taught here's exactly what to do and here's how to act and think and believe. And so then actually branching out and coming up with your own thoughts or actions or what you think and how to trust that is really difficult. So you recently shared that if you're in a loving relationship with a reliable, trustworthy partner, but you can't stop doubting if it will last, then you don't actually doubt the relationship, you doubt yourself. And I think that is so true, again, not just in relationships, but any big decision you're trying to make. If everything feels like it could potentially work, but then you're still in your head questioning it all, it's it really is more about your own internal lack of trust. So can you share more about that and kind of how you came to that understanding? Yeah, I mean, I kept... I doubted my relationship so much. I doubted like if he was right for me, I doubted if we would last. And again, as I was becoming more curious about the anxiety rather than just continuing to project it onto the relationship, I realized, oh, I don't actually trust my decisions. I I don't trust that I know how to make a good decision for myself. I don't trust that if the relationship did crumble I I don't trust that I would know how to be with that pain Mm. um and I don't trust that if you know the relationship didn't work out I don't trust that I would I don't trust that I would still be worthy Mm -hmm. right like I I don't trust that I would still be lovable Mm -hmm. um so it's to me there's there's four main components of self-trust the foundation is trusting in your inherent worthiness, no matter what you're worthy, you're inherently worthy. Nothing can change that. Nothing can add or subtract to that worthiness. It's inherent to the essence of who you are. And then another component is trusting in your decisions. So not needing to outsource it, not needing to get everyone's stamp of approval, but trusting that you're capable of making decisions. Mm -hmm. And then with that, trusting that you're able to handle challenges. So say you make a decision, right? You don't know the future. You don't exactly know what the outcome is going to be. So trusting that you can handle whatever outcome that is, which means being able to be with your emotions Hmm. because we're not really afraid of 
an imagined scenario, we're afraid of the emotions we would feel in that scenario. So do you know how to be with your emotions? Do you know how to meet your own discomfort? Do you know how to move pain and grief and disappointment through your body? And then the other component is trusting in the unknown unfolding of your life, meaning you don't need certainty. You trust that that things are always unfolding. You're you're trusting that it's all part of your evolution as a human. And you trust that it's it's all for your your highest good. Um, and this is something I do, I do keep from from Christianity that you know all things work together for our good. Hmm. Meaning all things, no matter how quote unquote bad we label them, are teaching us something about our own humanity. Hmm teaching us something. And so there, in that sense, there is no wrong path. Mm -hmm. In that sense, we don't need to obsess. We don't need to be a hundred percent sure all the time. So again, the, how do I cultivate those things? That's, that's a whole, that's not something I can tell you. That's, that's something we have to experience. And it takes, it takes a long time and it's, it's not something we're just, we come to a place where we're like, I trust myself fully. It's Mm -hmm. like, I'm for me, I'm always deepening that sense of trust in myself, deepening that sense of trusting in the unfolding of life, um, deepening my ability to handle challenges and discomfort. It's something I, I'm always expanding and growing in as I evolve as a human. Yeah. And I think that's so powerful just your note that you can't always teach these things. And I think that's some of the hardest part about working with anxiety or specifically relationship anxiety is that some of this really is trial and error. You know what I mean? And I know that relationships feel like such a big thing to think about trying and maybe having an error that brings up a lot of fear for people, but ultimately what works for me might not work for you and vice versa. And so trying to give someone a roadmap which I think a lot of people want. And that kind of is a sign that maybe you don't fully trust yourself as if you're asking for the five-step process or like, how is this supposed to work? And I think, you know, we're guilty of that, but just trusting, which is again, (laughs) you'll have to trust that you can build the trust, um, which is ironic and just keep showing up and keep practicing because it's a skill and it will come with time. Yeah, it definitely is a skill. It's a It's like building your trust muscle. It doesn't just happen overnight. No one can hand you a super ripped trust muscle. Like that's something you have to cultivate and practice. And it's, it honestly, it is the byproduct of a lot of the, the deeper work, like understanding why you don't trust yourself, learning, you know, developing that loving inner witness, breaking out of that good girl programming that says that you have to follow everything that you are expected to to do um self-trust for me was a byproduct of doing the body work that i did and learning what does fear feel like in my body what does anxiety feel like in my body what does shame feel like in my body and what what does my voice actually even sound like because it was so hidden and lost underneath all the conditioned voices and so learning to trust myself also meant learning who myself was and what that voice sounded like and felt like in my body i I call it um, embodied discernment which is being able to viscerally 
discern when the voice of anxiety or fear or shame is talking, mm. knowing what that feels like in your body, no matter what it's saying, it always feels the same. Yeah. <laughs> and when your voice, the essence of who you are, when that voice is speaking, what does that feel like? And as you begin to, to cultivate this embodied discernment, it becomes easier to trust yourself because you you know what your own voice sounds like and you you know that that you that's that you can trust that voice yeah and I feel like anyone listening if I can just think back to myself maybe two years ago or three years ago listening to this podcast I might have been like but how but how but how and I think people can trust that a lot more than they realize. Like, let me just give an example and you tell me if this is what you're talking about. But that fear and that shame, it feels like a constriction in my chest. It feels like my, you know, armpits start to sweating. It feels like I have to make a decision right then and there. And it feels like my brain starts getting scattered, like I can't focus. And those are just some of the symptoms, but there's so much more. And so these things are, people already know some of those symptoms for themselves. It's one of the first things they ask about when we start working together. I'm sure it's the same for you. Like, why does my chest keep tightening up? Why do I feel this in my stomach? And so just being a little bit more mindful, not in an analyzing way, but just kind of starting to get curious and notice those things so that you can notice what it feels like when that's not present and start to tune in to what it feels like when you are thinking a little bit more clearly so is that kind of what you're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, it, it feels it feels very different. And for a lot of people I work with, they're so used to hearing the voice of anxiety that it feels like the norm. Yeah. And then when anxiety is not present, they start panicking. Like, ah! okay, what am I hearing now? How do I feel now, right? And then anxiety just keeps entering back in. Yes. Uh, so for me, it's like, okay, let's first get really, really, really clear on the pattern of anxiety and shame like what's the quality of the sensations what's the quality of the thoughts like what's a recurring thing that always says how does it make you feel about yourself how does it make you feel about life because shame is always it's always going to feel so disempowering um like you're messing up like you're you know, there's no hope for you. If you don't get it right, you're going to be miserable and your whole life is going to be ruined. And there's no redemption for you because you just deserve to be miserable. If you make a mistake, like when we really, really tune into those voices, we see how nasty they are and they don't always sound nasty at first. Right. They sometimes for me, it was like, he's just not deep enough. You know, like you could be with someone better. And then like when I kind of really <laughs> tuned into that voice and, and what does that mean about me if I'm not with someone deep enough? What does that mean about me if I'm not with someone spiritual enough? Then I can really see like, oh, this is about me. And this is about how bad I would I would believe I would be if I wasn't with someone, quote unquote, good enough. Mm, yes, that's the ticket. I love going deeper into that. Like why... <laughs> Does this matter so much like in your in your shame voice? Like what is your shame telling you that would mean? And usually it's like that I suck and that anyone associated with me has to be perfect. Otherwise, I'm terrible and horrible. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And I also love something you said, and we don't have to go too deep into this one, but I just think it's good for people to hear this message that the opposite of doubt is not certainty. It's trust. And I think that's so important because the quest for certainty is never ending. 
Yeah. You're chasing a mirage, friends. If you want certainty, get into math. Although I'm sure there's some pockets of math that are all existential. I don't know. But if you want certainty, get it in the places where it makes sense. But certainty does not make sense when it comes to relationships and most things in life. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I've learned and I've heard you talk about before is that our shame can follow us in many different areas and it can manifest as relationship shame, but then it can suddenly trickle into our business and other areas of our life. And (laughs) you recently kind of opened up about a shame story that you were having about how to show up in your business and maybe feeling like you had to show up a certain way or people might not like how you were showing up. So do you want to just maybe explain a little bit of where your head was at and then we can talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. Again, it, it kind of goes with the, the um, implicit shame story where I'm, I'm constantly quote unquote praised or celebrated for showing up in one particular way. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of this subtle shame story that I notice of like, well, then that means I'm not, I'm useless or people don't care if I want to show up or show this side of myself if I want to show other aspects of my life people are not are no longer going to see me or the business or the brand (laughs) or the content as valuable so it's again placing value and meaning on certain aspects of myself and not on other aspects of myself and believing that if I were to show other aspects of myself or talk about other things that I'm passionate about that people aren't going to find me valuable anymore. Mm, Yeah. And that's so painful. And I know you have ways to work through it. So I'm not trying to make it sound like that, that you're stuck in that place, but I just know that pain of feeling like you're kind of putting yourself in this certain box and maybe it's not even a box that anyone else has actually put you in, but it's imagined. And so those stories run so deep of projections of this is what someone might think about me if I do this. And I think just for anyone listening, that's a really good place to start exploring your shame is when you start to create narratives about what other people might think about you instead of actually trying the thing and seeing what happens first. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, because I've done a lot of shame work, it's like, oh, I noticed it for me. I'm able to notice it really quickly. Um, and again, this is a skill you develop, a muscle you you cultivate. So I was like, oh, that's funny. Like <laughs> I'm able to kind of look at it and laugh a bit and be like, oh, interesting. And I like to practice challenging those stories. Um, and again, I've built enough bandwidth and self-trust to be able to challenge them. Um, I wouldn't suggest if you have this deep, dark shame story. I wouldn't suggest first posting it on the internet in front of 40,000 people, like share it with someone that, you know, is going to meet you with love and compassion unconditionally. Yeah. Cause that's the safest place to start. But I'm at this place where it's like, okay, if other people don't like this aspect of me, I'm not going to crumble. I know that this part of me is lovable. So I'm able to, to share and say, Hey, I noticed this shame story. And I, I have this belief that I'm, that I, that I projected that you guys won't value me anymore if I want to show up in this way. And of course, people are like, what? Oh my God, no, da, da, da. You know, like I was able to have that experience mirrored back to me in which people, which I'm so grateful, like 99% of the people who follow me on the internet are so loving and wonderful. And so 
you know, I, I showed this part of me, I, I aired this shame story and I was met with, I no, like, I want to see all of you, which is such a, a healing experience when the parts of us that we believe people don't want to see when someone meets it with like, no, please, please like let, let this part of you be known. Yeah. Absolutely. And just, I feel like one thing we didn't really bring up yet is just the reminder to everybody that all of us have parts of ourselves that we probably feel a little bit ashamed about or a lot a bit ashamed about. It's like everybody is a human being. We're not just perfect robots walking around that have had perfect life experiences and everyone has varying degrees of it, but not feeling shame for having the shame in the first place, like that shame sandwich we talked about. I know it it does take some time to unravel it, but adding shame about having shame is just, <laughs> it's not helpful. So just allowing yourself to be human and have all the parts of yourself is just so important. Yeah. I don't, I don't know many people who don't have shame about something. <laughs> I can't think of anyone. Yes, exactly. Well, before we go into the last couple of questions, is there anything else about either shame or good girl programming or trust that you want to share? I feel like we unpacked a lot, so I'll let you see what else you got for me. Just two last quick questions. The first one is something I ask everybody because this is the You Love and You Learn podcast. Is there something about love that you have learned along your journey that you want to leave listeners with today? Yes. Love is more about your ability to navigate differences than it is about loving someone who's a a perfect carbon copy of you. Like if you only want someone who's so similar to you, you're just loving a, a carbon copy of yourself but love is really practiced in navigating differences and navigating challenges in meeting your partner and, and seeing them for who they are and not trying to make them more like you mm, love yeah. is really practiced when we allow our our person our partner to to be as they are and not try to mold them into who we think they should be or that they should be more similar to us. Mm, That's a really good one. I love that. Thank you. Just last question about where people can stay connected with you if they want to learn more about your work or what else you have going on at the moment. Yeah, you could follow me on Instagram. I hang out there the most. It's at healing.embodied. I have a TikTok, but I'm going to be honest, I'm like never really on it and I don't really love that app. Um, But yeah, Instagram is where I hang out most. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea. This was so great. I learned a lot and I know everyone else listening definitely will too. So I appreciate you for coming on. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and You Learn podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it would mean the absolute world to me if you could rate and review the podcast because the more ratings and reviews there are, the more people that can hear this message. And it's really important to me to get this message out to the world and to create a space where people can learn about love and relationships in a way that is not judgmental, in a way that helps them expand their perspective from the cultural narratives that we've heard and seen in the movies and in Hollywood and the media. And the more ratings and reviews that are there, 
the more people that can hear this message. So thank you again so much. It really means the world to me that you are listening and see you in the next episode.